Well, I'm, I'm, I'm so thankful that, uh, that, that we get a chance to do this over the, next, uh, over the next three weeks, but throughout March, to talk about justice, to have a, an ongoing conversation about that, to ask questions about justice. Last week, Zach was here, and you got to hear from him. I'm thankful that he was here, and I'm thankful to be back, because I think this is a really important conversation not just in the world around us, though it definitely is in the world around us. If you go to any college campus right now and start talking about uh, is justice important, is social justice important, a group conversation will break out very easily. If at your workplace on Monday you, you talk about uh, with, with your colleagues what makes a great society, almost certainly caring for the needy, caring for the vulnerable will come up in some fashion or another. So this is a conversation that's happening, so I'm glad that we're doing it inside the church, that we're uh, joining this ongoing conversation. But it's not just a cultural conversation. It's one that has been going a lot longer uh, than, than it's been going on in our country alone. I didn't grow up in the church, and so uh, my, my first, I think, uh, contact with or wrestling with the idea of justice or social justice came through uh, learning about uh, Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, and that may be the same for some of you as well. But, but Dr. King had this really incredible impact on my life and actually was a huge reason why I became a follower of Jesus in the first place. I heard a sermon of his when I was 18, 19 years old where he said, uh, the arc of history may be long, but it bends towards justice. And when I was trying to figure out what I believed about the world or how I was going to move through the world and act in the world, that actually lined up with what I saw. Because every time there's a, 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 an evil something uh, that tries to, to, to rip at what's good in, in the world. Uh, one act leads to, to hundreds, sometimes thousands of people flooding in with relief and help and, and, and unity. I mean, you might think of uh, September 11th as an example of that. So the arc of history may be long, but it bends towards justice. And any time it bends away from justice, we actually feel it. We say things like, well, that's not right, someone should do something about that. And so when I found that, that that really lined up with what I saw in the world, I began this process of understanding what motivated Dr. King. I mean, why go through the, the hatred and, and the beatings and the, and the imprisonment and the fire hoses for the sake of, of social justice? Why do that? And he actually answered the question in his letter uh, from a Birmingham jail. He said, I do all of this because I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I thought, wait a second. If who Jesus is and what the gospel is, if it actually means something, not just for some time later, but it means something right now, if it can be a change agent in the culture around me, then maybe there's something to this Jesus and maybe there's something to this gospel. And that led to me eventually following the same Jesus that he did. And so every year around January 19th, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, I try to listen to the I Have a Dream speech. And I've started to uh, make my family endure this process with me. And so we'll sit down and watch the I Have a Dream speech. I actually have a picture of my view, uh, my view of, of watching it this year. Uh, you can see the Lincoln Memorial, which was uh, kind of on the broadcast at that time. But let me describe what I was seeing. And the reason I took a picture is because it, it, really, uh, it really struck me. This is... Uh, my daughter on the, on the left, uh, my little Guatemalan princess, who just this year started asking questions like, so if I was alive when Dr. King was alive uh, and Riley and I, my friend, Riley happens to be white, would we be able to sit next to each other? Would we even be able to be on the same bus together? That's my wife, Abby, with her arm around uh, my youngest. A little hard to see there. Uh, he, he came home from Haiti uh, almost a year ago to the day. Uh, two days from now will be 
a year, and so he's still uh, getting used to the language. So mostly what he's doing uh, in these moments is trying to figure out what happened to the color on the television and why we weren't watching Wild Kratts. Um, so that's what he was doing. And then on the far right is my 12-year-old son who honestly asked questions like, why do we still have to talk about this? It doesn't even make any sense that these types of things are issues, but we, but we sat and we listened to Dr. King's words that, that we probably are familiar with, that he has this dream of a day where children will be judged not by the color of their skin, but the content of their character, where those with power will use their power uh, to care for those without any, where, where, where we will be people who help others be freed up to progress toward what God intended. That's his dream, and, I, and I'm struck every year when I listen to that, at what's at stake? What's at stake for the world? What's at stake for my community? What's at stake for Christians as we take up this idea and this charge, this call of justice? And I realize when I hear Dr. King talk about his dream, it's actually not his dream alone. It's one that started with the God we follow. Even a cursory look at the scriptures show that justice is something that God cares deeply about, and he calls his people to repeatedly. In fact, if you went through an exercise and grabbed a Bible and highlighted every reference to justice, you'd end up with about 2,000 references throughout the Old and the New Testament. And then if you took that exercise a step further, if you cut out all of those highlighted verses, what you would have is a Bible that barely holds together and would be almost completely unintelligible. Because justice is this thread that runs from beginning to end in the scriptures. In the Old Testament, there are two words that we might uh, use to give a full picture of, uh, of what, we, or what the Bible means when it talks about justice. The first one is uh, sedekah. It's usually translated righteousness. Uh, and maybe you hear that word in righteousness, oh yeah, uh, rightness with God. That means my own personal morality, me, me being morally right. And there's a sense in which that's true. But the broader sense in the Old Testament is this idea that all of the relationships we have are executed with fairness, with equity, with generosity. It's what you might consider uh, being just. That's the first word. The second word, mishpat, is a word that we might traditionally uh, uh, use and, and translate into justice. And usually in the Old Testament, it's, it means specifically care for the vulnerable. And over and over again, the vulnerable that are talked about in the Old Testament uh, are four. Widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Those are, those are the four groups. It's what some commentators have called the quartet of the vulnerable. Okay, why those? Why are those four talked about so often in the Old Testament? Well... In pre-modern agrarian society, these are the people that would live at a subsistence level, meaning if there was any famine or drought or, uh, or invasion, these people had no security. They had nothing backing them up. There was no chance of savings, no real uh, social status. And so the call of the followers of God, God's people, was to always notice the need of these most vulnerable people and make sure those needs were met as much as could possibly be. And so in our day, the, the quartet might be different. It might be four different groups. Maybe it's those groups. Maybe it's different groups. But the call remains exactly the same. Notice the most vulnerable and help their needs be met. And so the call to justice, if you, if you think about it broadly, is both a call to fix what's broken so what's broken in the world, uh, you can uh, bring people to justice and you can advocate for those who have been treated unjustly. So uh, fix what's broken in the world, but also to live in a way where the world doesn't need fixing. 
That's a full picture of justice. If we keep that full picture in mind to fix what's wrong with the world and live in a way where the world doesn't need fixing, I think we'll understand better what Jesus was after in his first sermon. And that's what we're looking at over the four weeks. Uh, This is the second week. We're looking at Jesus' first recorded sermon, and he talks a lot about justice in this first sermon. There's some intentionality. And there's actually a a risk in us doing this series. And I just want to put it out there and and not let it kind of hide in the background. There is a risk in doing a series on justice. And And the risk is this. You might feel something. Like over these weeks, you might feel something. You, you might think like, well, that's unfair, or that's not right, or that's unsettling. You might feel that. And here's the pledge that I hope we make together as a community, that we make as individuals, but we make together as a community. Here, here's the pledge. Let, let's not be back off or back down or look away people. Because Jesus wasn't a back off or back down or look away person. Let's be people who see. So Jesus' first sermon goes something like this. It's recorded in Luke chapter 4. He, Jesus, went to Nazareth where he was brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, and sits down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began by saying, Today... This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus, for his first sermon, chooses 500-year-old words. The prophet Isaiah, that's when he lived and ministered and wrote, was 500 years before Jesus. And here's what the prophet Isaiah was talking about, the book that we have in the Old Testament called Isaiah. This is what it's about, particularly in chapter 61. Though the circumstances may not look like it, God is going to show up and he is going to set the world right. That's what Isaiah was talking about. And in chapter 61, what Jesus reads from is is Isaiah saying there are actually some things that you can look for to know that that has come, that God has shown up. There are some things, some clues that you'll see. And one of the main clues that Isaiah says and Jesus reads is that there'll be recovery of sight for the blind. It's an interesting detail. The other kind of three aspects that are seen in that section that Jesus reads are, are a little more kind of, uh, kind of broad, but this is very specific, recovery of sight for the blind. It's interesting to note that in the Old Testament, uh, there is no account of sight being recovered from someone who's blind, yet Jesus chooses this miracle more than any other. So when Jesus does the miracle of healing blindness, he's not so subtly pointing to himself as God with us, God shown up to set all things right. And so Jesus came to fix what is broken, to heal blindness. But he also came to transform every human heart, heal blindness. And so to see what God inviting us to do justice has to do with recovery of sight for the blind, I think it might be helpful for us to spend some time 
looking at one of these accounts of Jesus healing blindness. So that's what we're going to do for the rest of our time together. And as we do, I think we're going to see two things. And if you're a note taker, then this is a good time uh, to, to get out your pencil and write notes. The two things that I think we'll see, that God wants us to participate in healing. And Jesus came to heal blindness. So God wants us to participate in the miracle of healing the world. And our blindness to what's wrong in the world doesn't excuse us from doing justice because Jesus came to heal blindness. God wants us to participate in the healing, and Jesus came to heal blindness. And here's my hope. Here's my hope for the next uh, few minutes that we have together, that we won't sit in the position of the healer, Because we can do that so often when we read Jesus' account, when we read the Gospels, we can sit in the position of the healer. What I'd rather us do is sit in the position of the ones needing healed. Let's sit in the seat of the blind man and see what we can learn from that. So with that in mind, John chapter 9, one of my favorite scriptures. As he went along, this is Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it in the man's eyes. That's gross. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This is a word that means sent. And so the man went and washed and came home seeing. Okay, let's start with Jesus' disciples. So for Jesus' disciples, and honestly for some of us today, the popular theory is that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. So someone must have broken the law for the scales of justice to tip away from the favor of this guy. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Because clearly somebody broke the law and did something. It's worth noting that this question asked by Jesus' followers, had absolutely nothing to do with compassion for the individual, for the man born blind. It was a question about justice, but it had nothing to do with caring or honestly even seeing the man born blind. It was theology with no heart. And the reason it was theology with no heart is because the question comes from a place of misunderstanding who God is. They believe that God is a God of karma, not a God of justice. Remember, justice is freeing people to progress toward God's good intention. That's justice, and that is the God we serve. And so Jesus turns this idea, bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. He turns that upside down. He says, no, the thing is, this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in his life. God's not using this guy as an object lesson. It's not just so that the works of God can be displayed through this miracle, but actually displayed in his life that he can be freed up. If you hear me say anything today, this might be the most important. God cares about individuals, and he cares about you. You're not an object lesson. I don't know if uh, if you're struggling, and I don't know what you're struggling with, but if you find yourself in a place of struggle and you're like, I think God is just trying to, like, prove something, just try to use me as some type of object lesson, you're more valuable than that. God cares and loves you. That's why he came to live and love and die and rise again for you. He cares about you, but we do live in a fallen, broken world. We do. And part of that means is sin and disease and, and death will show up in places where it shouldn't. Sometimes things will not add up because of the ripples 
of brokenness in this world. Sometimes our suffering will be a result of our actions. If I speed and leaving here and I get pulled over and get a ticket, that's suffering that results from my own actions. But sometimes it won't. Sometimes sin and, and, and pain will just bump into you on the way you're going. And Jesus is showing us that God can bring rightness, can bring justice, can do something new, even in that reality. And so Jesus shows us that by doing something entirely gross. I mean, it is. It is disgusting. I do not encourage you to be like, you know what? I'm going to tell my friends about Jesus, and so I'm going to replicate this miracle. Don't try it. I would not encourage that uh, this afternoon. But he, he bends down to the ground, spits, rubs it, makes mud with his, with his spit, and then he wipes it on the guy's eyes. I mean, it's totally disgusting. But it's a not too veiled reference to creation. Remember, God created man out of the dust of the ground. So this is something completely new. This is a reference to new creation. And then Jesus tells him to do this next. Do this thing next. Not five years from now, he doesn't develop a comprehensive plan for how he can become a super Christian. He, he just says, do this next so that you can be freed up to progress toward what God intended. And this is important. Just like we might, the man actually knew what to do next. He knew where to go. He knew where the pool of Siloam was. He didn't have to ask any questions. Everybody in the town would have known where the pool of Siloam was. It was pretty famous. There's a reference to it in 2 Kings chapter 20. It was built in 701 B.C. by King Hezekiah, and, and this is actually pretty fascinating if you're a nerd. But, uh, so in 701 B.C., the Assyrian army was invading from the north, and, uh, and they were coming down. They destroyed 46 Judean cities, and Jerusalem was next. And so Hezekiah said, the only way we're going to be able to stave off this siege is by bringing fresh water into the wall so we don't have to go outside and fetch clean water. And so he had his engineers from a local stream build an underground uh, chamber, an aqueduct, essentially underground, that brought fresh water into the walls of the city. That was the pool of Siloam. And so everyone would have known where the pool was. And everyone would have known that this is a difficult task. Getting to the pool is a difficult thing, even for a sighted person. Here's a picture of the, the pool of Siloam. It's coming. I'm positive. There it is. Um, so this is, uh, there's a lot of modern development. It wouldn't have looked like this in, in Jesus' day, but you can see the, the topography. There, there's a couple of uh, flights worth of stairs to get down to uh, the pool, and it would have been more difficult in Jesus' day than it even is today. And so the guy knew where to go, and he knew it was difficult. This is our first point. The difficulty or the complexity of the task doesn't excuse us from taking our next right step. It never, ever does. So if our task, if our call, if our invitation is to do justice in the world, then the difficulty or complexity of the issues does not excuse us from taking our next right step because God wants us to participate in the miracle of healing the world. He says to the guy, go, take this next step. It's the same thing he says to us, take a next step. And so the blind man is faithful to take the steps that Jesus had laid out for him, but it's worth asking the question, why? Like, why do it? He wasn't healed yet. He had to take this difficult uh, road to get, to get down to where Jesus told him, like, why would he do that? Maybe he was, he was bored, he didn't have anything else to do, maybe it was fool's hope. I, I don't think so. Because there's something significant about that pool, not just that everybody knew where it was. 
In Jesus' day, the, the Feast of the Tabernacles was like the Judean Thanksgiving. It was a festival remembering that God had freed his people from Egypt. He had walked them through the desert, and he delivered them in the promised land. He had protected them. He would rescued them. And this feast, this Judean Thanksgiving, began at the Pool of Siloam with a procession called the Rejoicing of the Water Drawing. And so a, a designated priest would dip a golden uh, uh, pitcher into the water, and he'd fill that pitcher up, and then they would walk up the steps and up the Temple Mount, and they would deliver that pitcher of water onto the Temple, the temple altar. And so there was singing and dancing. There's a whole parade that followed the priest, and it was really quite a deal. That started this feast. And it was actually during the Feast of the Tabernacles that Jesus, in the temple courtyard with that picture in the background, said, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. So Jesus, again, is cleverly pointing to himself as the solution, as the Savior. He's inviting this man into the process of following the one that has come, God in the flesh. Because following Jesus is always the way this world gets healed. Because Jesus was God's plan for how to deal with the problem of evil, the problem of brokenness, the problem of our blindness to each other. Jesus is the way it gets healed. But even if the blind man believed that, even if he believed that was true, even if he believed Jesus was the Savior, Jesus is asking him to do something difficult. And so even if we believe that Jesus is the Savior, even if every single one of us in this room would proclaim that to be true, Jesus is asking us to do something difficult. And so that choosing to, to, to remain blind actually starts to sound a little bit like an attractive offer. Right? Because we forget that the guy could have said, no thanks. He, he could have said to Jesus, like, Jesus, you don't understand my life. You do not understand how hard it is. You don't understand, like, that task seems impossible. You don't understand what I have to deal with. You're not with me every day. And, and he could have uh, complained about the struggle long enough that he missed the opportunity to do something about it. A couple weeks ago, I was... Uh, Cleaning my house, which is something that I, that I actually really like to do. I know that makes me strange, but I really like cleaning. Uh, and so I, I was cleaning, and I noticed that there were uh, lick marks on the, the back door, the patio, uh, the back door of the patio, which isn't all that odd because we have two dogs, and I've, I've tried to train them uh, not to do dog things, but they still do dog things. And so uh, I was like, okay, well, I'll clean it. So I go outside, and I spray Windex top to bottom and start wiping top to bottom because I'm... Uh, a normal person, that's how you do it. And so, um, so I'm, I'm going top to bottom, and I get to right about here, which is where the lick marks were, and I wipe. I'm like, that's weird. And I wipe, and I wipe, and I wipe, and I wipe, and I realize the lick marks aren't on the outside. They're on the inside, and our dogs are always outside. That means a human has licked <laughs> the inside of the sliding glass door. 
Now, at this point, the only person that was around was Abby, and so she felt the, the brunt of the blow. And I come in, and I'm just railing uh, against society in general and how, uh, how someday the society is going to be worse because we're raising terrible children who they're going to have to deal with someday. And, and this is like the downfall of all things. Uh, and, and, I, and I just kind of kept going. And finally, I was like, you know what? i got to blow off some steam. So I went to a place that's a little more controllable and cleaned something else. And I came back 10 minutes later and realized, oh, my gosh, the lick marks are still there. I had complained so long that I'd forgotten I could have done something about it. I could have just cleaned it. Complaining isn't the goal. Knowing isn't the goal. Seeing actually isn't the goal. I saw that something was wrong, but that's not the goal. And we should. When we see something wrong with the world, we should use whatever platform possible to help others know what's wrong with the world. I think that's a big deal. And not about the licking thing. Um, that's not really injustice. But, um, but we should let people know about it. But, but that's not the goal. Disruption's a good thing if it leads to good action. So the man was disrupted, and he took a step. And then he took another one. And then he took another one. He didn't take them all at once. He took them one at a time, one right next step, again and again and again. And because he did... He could participate in the world around him more fully. He could engage in the world around him. He was more able to be what he was made to be because he took those repeated steps. And that's how it is with the miracles of Jesus. Again and again, we see it. There's always a miracle behind the miracles of Jesus with this man born blind who can now see. The the man who was living in a tomb because he was demon-possessed. Literally, I mean, you couldn't be more left for dead than being uh, relegated to a tomb, cast out of your own city. Uh, Jesus heals him, heals the demon, and, and then tells him, go back to your town. The man with the shriveled hand who, on, on the Sabbath day, he was sitting on the outside. Jesus takes him to the center. Essentially, on church day, he was like walking him right up in front, and he heals him in front of everyone. The leper who he heals, and he says, go to the priest to be certified that you're clean. What's the link in all of these healings? The miracle behind the miracle, restored relationship. This man could now f- more fully participate in the world around him. The, the formerly demon-possessed man could now go back to his community. The man with the shriveled hand didn't have to be on the sidelines anymore. He could be a full participant in, in, the, in the synagogue community. The, the man with leprosy who was sent to, to go be certified, the reason he needed to be certified is because he had an infectious disease. He couldn't go back to his own home. He had to live on the streets away from his family. Unless he was certified that he was clean, then he could go back home. The miracle behind the miracle is always restored relationship. But if we choose to remain blind to the world around us, to the people around us, then we don't even give that miracle a chance, that relationship a chance. We have to see each other. That's where it starts. And so I'm a white male who grew up in southern Indiana. And nine years ago, I moved to Florida because I had an incredible opportunity at a wonderful architecture firm. And now I'm a pastor at an incredible church that's predominantly middle class white. And there's some diversity here, some, some glimpses of what we'll see in heaven. Because what we'll see in heaven is we're all gathered around the, fr- the throne worshiping God. But every tribe and tongue and nation, it's going to be the most diversity we've ever seen. We're all focused on doing what we're made to do, worshiping God. And there's some expression of that here, and I'm so grateful for it. But we're predominantly middle class white. And so 
If I can't see that how I experience the world, how I move through the world is different than a 15-year-old black male or a 45-year-old Hispanic female or the army vet mechanic who's working on my car or the, the waitress that's going to bring me my lunch later or the wealthy business owner or the Syrian refugee, if I can't see that my experience of the world is different than theirs, I'm not giving relationship a chance. That miracle doesn't even have a chance. Which leads to the second point. Our blindness doesn't excuse us from seeing because Jesus came so that we could see. And when we don't, we actually perpetuate the first curse. The first curse, Adam and Eve in the garden, when they turned away from God's plan, they hid from each other. Isolation, that's the first curse. And we perpetuate it when we don't see each other. When we choose not to see what's going on in the world. I mean, last year we saw riots occur in our own country. Because the rate of violence against people of color by police and, and violence against police was reaching a boiling point and people were expressing themselves and it begged attention. And we can choose to forget that that, didn't, that, 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 that happened. We can choose to forget that that happened altogether, uh, but that's a choice. And we may think, well, you know, knowing more about, about racism or systemic injustice is just too much. And if I know more, then I'll know more and that'll lead to action. And I'm not sure my schedule has, uh, has time for that, but that's a choice. Or we can say, you know what, I'm so convinced in my own convictions. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm on the right side, so I actually don't have to hear anybody on the other side. But that's a choice, too. It's what you might call self-inflicted blindness. And here's the thing. You, you might be thinking at this point, like, okay, so I get it. Like, you're telling me which side of the aisle to be on. I'm not. I'm not telling you which side of the aisle to be on. There are people on either side of the aisle that love the idea of justice for all people. What I'm saying is, is if you have a side of the aisle, the call of Jesus is to actually see the person on the other side of the aisle and love them. If following Jesus, if the way you follow Jesus, if it leads you to hate anyone, it's actually not Jesus that you're following. Jesus said, love your neighbor, but he also said, love your enemy. That's our call every day time, regardless of whether we have a side of the aisle or not. Tim Keller is a pastor up in uh, New York, brilliant guy. We have some of his books out in, in the Resource Center, but he says, we instinctively tend to limit for whom we will exert ourselves. We'll do it for people like us and for people whom we like, but Jesus will have none of it. When Jesus selects the, the Samaritan helping the Jew, remember we, we studied the, the good Samaritan just a few weeks back. Jesus couldn't have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, religion, is your neighbor. Not everyone is your brother and sister in faith, but everyone is your neighbor, and you must love your neighbor, and you can't love your neighbor if you don't see them. And so we can hear statistics like, one in every 10 black men in their 30s is in prison or jail on, on any given day. African-American males are six times more likely to be imprisoned than, than white males, two and a half times more likely than Hispanic males. We can hear one in three children in sub-Saharan Africa are, are undernourished. We can hear Orlando ranks dead last in major cities and in median income, which means that there are hardworking people in our city, maybe harder working than us or at least just as hard, who can't pay for basic necessities like housing or, or, or food or 
those types of things. We can hear those things and we can say something like, well, they probably deserve it. But then we're doing exactly what the disciples did, exactly what Jesus came to correct. Because we're saying, you know what? They probably, probably just deserved it. Who sinned so that this is happening to this person? They probably deserve it. But we can choose a different way. We can choose to see others. We can accept the healing of not just our eyes, but our hearts as well, the one that Jesus, the Savior, came to bring. And when we do, we have a shot at joining him on, the, on earth as it is in heaven mandate. Remember, Jesus didn't pray, God, get us out of here. It's a mess down here. Get us away. He said, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The on earth as it is in heaven is a part of the constitution of the Christian. And when we don't see people, we nullify our own foundational documents. And our gospel ends up looking like that tattered Bible with all the justice verses torn out. It's almost unintelligible. And if at this point you're like, gosh, okay, um, I, haven't, I haven't been doing this right and, and something like guilt is starting to well up, don't let it happen. Do not let guilt well up because guilt doesn't move us forward. So what do we do? We take a step. The man wasn't healed until he went to the pool. Jesus invited him to participate in the healing and he did. He took part in the miracle by taking a step and then taking another one and then taking another one. One of the lesser known lines in that I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King Jr., we have come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now matters. What you do with your life matters. We are called to be people. One of the things we believe in here at Summit is that we're called to be people who make the most of our place in history because God's put us here for a reason. He could have put us anywhere, anytime, but he put us right here, right now. Now matters. So we should be part of something, something new, maybe something you've never considered or experienced or cared about, but there is never a reference to justice in the scriptures without a call to do justice. This isn't a concept. It's an invitation. So we're called to join God in the miracle of healing the world. What does that look like? Well, maybe it's serving alongside one of our partner organizations. There's so many good organizations in our city doing great work. Up Orlando, the Coalition for the Homeless. Samaritan Resource Center, they're all caring for unemployed, underemployed, and homeless people in our city, reminding them of their dignity, reminding them of their worth. If you want contacts, I've got them. Maybe it's volunteering at an inner city school as a tutor. Maybe it's working with a settlement agency, helping a refugee know how to get to the grocery store and what to buy when they get there. Maybe it's eating at that Colombian or Korean or Syrian restaurant that you love so much and not just enjoying the food, but actually going to get to know the owner. Maybe it's taking time to care for and about someone with special needs. There's a, a ministry that happens uh, once a month on Friday at our Herndon campus. It's called Capernaum. It's a division of Young Life, great organization. Essentially, they get young, special needs kids together, and you just go and you enjoy time with them, and, and you help them know that they matter to God, that God has a plan and a purpose for them. Maybe it's pouring into that ministry. Or maybe it's taking time to get to know that elderly woman or that single mom or that family that's different than you in your own neighborhood. 
Maybe it's in your workplace. Maybe being the type of boss that recognizes the hard work of your staff. Helping people grow and, and develop. Get an opportunity. Maybe it's being a coworker that gives credit when credit is due rather than trying to take credit for yourself. Maybe if you're a student, maybe it's sticking up for that kid that no one else will so that they're freed up to progress toward what God intended. Maybe justice isn't that far off. Maybe it's really close to home because here's, here's what happens. The movement of injustice is this way. It starts individually and then it starts to seep into every system. It infects every system. That's how injustice happens. But injustice is undone the exact same way. It starts individually, and it moves out, and it, and it heals every system. Justice is an individual movement. So maybe those are first steps, but actually maybe those are second steps. Remember, we've been in this season where we've been talking about knowing enough to care and then caring enough to do something. Maybe you're at a spot where it's like, I just don't know enough about these issues. That's exactly why we're doing the speaker series that we're doing in the evenings over at Hernan. We had our first one uh, last week on poverty. It was absolutely incredible. I learned so much from our speakers. Tonight, we're talking about human trafficking. If that's something you've heard about, but you're like, I don't know enough to even do anything. It seems like a big issue. Come to the speaker series series tonight. There are also resources. We have them out at the Resource Center, uh, little study guides that you can, for these four issues that we're going to be looking at through this justice series, grab one, flip through it. There are organizations, there are websites, there, there are things to consider, scriptures, like look into this. Start with that knowing aspect. Go to the speaker series and, and hear and learn about people, about issues that deserve our attention. I don't know what comes next for you in terms of engaging with justice, but something should. I love the response that this formerly blind guy gives as people start to ask him questions. We didn't read it today, but when you get home, do it. read the rest of, of John chapter 9. It's, it's incredible. And so this blind guy is starting to walk around, and people are saying, hey, you look like that guy that was blind. And he says, yeah, it actually is me. He's like, well, I couldn't be. And they start peppering him with questions about the mechanics of how he was healed. Uh, and he's like, I don't know, it was super gross, but it worked. No, he didn't say that. But, um, but it, so there are questions about the mechanics and where is Jesus now and all of these things. And the guy finally stops him. He's like, no, 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 look, I don't know. I, I don't know everything. Here's all I know. Jesus asked me to do something, and I did it. And now I can see, and I'm different. Let's be like that. Let's be people who are different because now we can see. We don't have to know everything. We just have to take our next right step. Let's be people who see. And here's the thing. Seeing, seeing the issues, knowing more, that actually won't end injustice. But we'll never end injustice if we don't start with seeing. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful for, uh, for your truth, for your word, for your love, for your care, for this world that you haven't invited us to just wait it out. And you're not a God who's just waiting it out. You're a God who's living and active and loving in this world. That's why, that's precisely why you invite us to care for the vulnerable, to see the need of the world and help repair it and live in a way where the world doesn't need repairing. So I pray that you would help us do that. Give us clarity on what our next right step is in terms of engaging justice and give us the fortitude, the strength, and the clarity to take that step. And then we'll lean on you again for the step after that.
In Jesus' name, amen.